0: Let's Pod This is sponsored by Roast Scout. Roast Scout is the best way to discover amazing, delicious coffee from some of the nation's best independent roasters. The people at Roast Scout believe that great coffee's everywhere, but since you can't be everywhere, you might miss out. So they created a way to bring that great coffee to you. They work with small batch roasters from around the country to ship fresh roasted whole bean coffee direct to your door each month. Now. Other coffee subscription services typically send you just one brand of coffee month after month after month, and that's fine, but it's not great. I mean, what if there's something better out there? What if your coffee soulmate is there in some small town in the mountains just waiting for you to find it? Roast Scout delivers a new bag of coffee to you from a different roaster every single month. Sign up today at roastscout.com slash let's fix this to get $5 off your first month. Roast Scout, discover remarkable coffee. Hey everyone, and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore. I'm joined by Scott Melson at the News Desk. What's up dude, how are you? I think we should have desks. Sports desk, News Desk. We should have desks. Someone in the bullpen. I don't know what all those are. How are you, sir?
1: I'm. You know what? I'm well. It's. Uh, I'm a little tired. It's been. It's been kind of a long week, but. Uh, you know, I'm doing pretty good. I'm How are well. you?
0: Uh, I am also well. Thank you for asking. Uh, so this week's episode is going to be a little bit different. We had just honed our format, and then the election cycle hit, and it's been all kinds of. Uh, different things each week so we're, we're gonna skip the news roundup for today with the exception of one story that Scott you told me about a little while ago yeah uh, with uh Senator Inhofe yeah so uh
1: regular listeners to the show um you may want to sit down because this has never happened before it may not happen again <laughs> um uh James Inhofe one of our, our senior senator from the state of Oklahoma I'm gonna say deserves a shout out this week a positive one a positive shout out a shout out and a well done which is not a sentence that i've ever uttered uh in
0: you were not a, you were not center. an in half supporter
1: i'm not no
0: but what happened this week
1: well so uh there is a big spending bill a big appropriations bill that passed uh the senate and was signed by the president this week um and there is something of note to it um Senator Inhofe um, put a provision in this legislation that will provide $25 million to support graduate medical education programs at OU and OSU, which are our state's two medical schools. Um, something we've talked about occasionally here on the show. Um, it's it's not something we've gotten into a ton just because it is a fairly um, – it's fairly complicated. Um, there – Some of the funds that support medical education and graduate medical education specifically, which means residents, so doctors that have finished medical school but are in training to become what's called an attending physician, a board-certified attending physician, Um, many of the funds that support those training efforts are from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Um, The two colleges uh, of medicine in Oklahoma at OU and OSU have been in a dispute with CMS about the use of those funds. Um, CMS feels like there have been some funds that were used inappropriately. Our universities say no. There's been an ongoing dis- kind of dispute about this, but at the end of the day, CMS has said, "Hey, we're not going to continue providing those matching funds," which blows a big hole in the budget for graduate. In an already
0: education. broken budget,
1: right? And and could ultimately have the I mean could have the effect of of I mean really decimating. Medical residency programs in the state of Oklahoma and that matters one because doctors tend to practice in the states where they train in residency because in residency Oftentimes folks are married or they get married or they're having children. They kind of put down roots Many people to residency in the states where they're from so they tend to stay there So without residency programs medical students who graduate are leaving the state They're gonna go elsewhere to train and there's a great chance that they won't come back. Right. So that's the first thing
0: and And Oklahoma is a state that has a actually has a shortage of physicians, particularly in rural areas. Yeah, we were. I've said this before, I think, on the show that Oklahoma was the state rated by the New England Journal of Medicine as the least prepared for a Medicaid expansion, which we didn't do anyway, so it didn't matter. But shocking, it's because we have very few primary care physicians per capita. Yeah, and the other reason that
1: having our residency programs go under residents at both at OSU, uh, medical center in Tulsa and the Oklahoma health sciences center, OU health sciences center here in Oklahoma city residents provide a ton. I mean, millions and millions of dollars a year in care for the Oklahomans who find themselves, um, kind of in the most dire straits and in the most need. Uh, there's a lot of indigent care that's undertaken by residents. Um, a lot of folks that are on, uh, Medicaid, certainly some folks that are on Medicare, um, so it would be devastating for that population of patients for the state to lose our residency programs. So, uh, I, refer, t- I
0: referred two patients to the residence clinic this week.
1: Uh, I'm sure both the patients and the residents. Thank you.
0: Um, the patients should, yeah. Residents
1: were less grateful. <laughs> I can, I can see that. Um, but Senator Anhoff uh, was able to insert a, uh, a provision, which um, would also be known as an earmark, right? One of those earmarks that everybody hates, that everybody says we need to get rid of. Senator Inhofe was able to put an earmark in the legislation that's going to provide $25 million to support uh, residencies here in Oklahoma.
0: That is a huge, huge deal. So you're excited about Senator Inhofe because as the chair of the Armed Services Committee, he got Oklahoma money for medical education. Yep. I did not see that coming.
1: Right. And the point like the, there's two points that I'm trying to make here. One is that he got the money and that's good for Oklahomans and it's good for the residency programs. But the second point is this is an argument. We talk all the time on the show about, you know, people talk about um, career politicians and how it's terrible that people would, ha- would be a career politician or like there need to be term limits. People shouldn't be able to be senators for 25, 30, 40 years. And there's a lot of merit to that argument and the idea that it combats corruption. But the other thing is though, This kind of an earmark happens when your senior senator chairs a powerful committee and Mm -hmm. has been a senator for 30 years, right? When you have two junior, like, two senators, and your senior senator has been there for one term, maybe two, and a junior senator who's been there for one term, you don't get to just put $25 million provisions in otherwise unrelated spending bills. Not usually. Um, And, you know, one person's wasted spending is another person's, you know, it's... Lifeblood. Yeah, for, for... the economic activity in their state, so, well, and he's
0: already garnered a lot of additional funding for our bases, our military right. bases as yeah. well, which is a big deal, and and not just for military, but for private contractors right. and, and all that that goes. I know a ton of folks that work at Tinker that are not military, right? So that's my that's my shout out to one to Senator Inhofe
1: um, for doing this, but two, it's my shout out to the political process, right, mm-hmm. to the idea that. You know, the the process of the sausage getting made is not always pretty, but we do even, you can still see instances of good governance from people with whom you strongly disagree on nearly every issue, That's as right. I do with the
0: senator. Senator Inhofe, if you or your staffers happen to be listening and you'd like to show your appreciations for Scott and his shout out, please email us at podcast at let's and I'll give you the address where you can mail a sm- snowball. <laughs> <laughs> or, I mean, we'd have him on the show. Yeah, oh, for sure. If the senator wants to come on the show. I guarantee that uh, Senator Inhofe has some tremendous stories about his time in Washington over the years. Sure. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's make a 180-degree pivot away from the federal government and away from the Republicans, honestly, um, <laughs> to our two special guests that we have in studio here, both... Tulsans that made the drive to Oklahoma City to be on this podcast, the highest rated political podcast in the state. That's right. Can I get a click? A a clink? Uh, Yes. I have so much equipment here that I I didn't want to bump it. (laughs) All right. So in in studio today, we have uh, Kimberly Fobbs, who is running for insurance commissioner. Hello, Kimberly. Hello. How are you? Good. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having us. We also have Fred Durrell, who's running for labor commissioner. Hello, sir. Hello. Some of you may have heard at least uh, Mr. Durrell's voice before. He participated in the Labor Commissioner debate that we co-hosted with Nondoc uh, a few months ago. A few weeks. Time is slipping away on me. But welcome back. Thanks. It's at least twice that you've been down here, so that's good. Uh, So I I think our format for today, Scott, is just going to be us talking to both of these people. I will admit up front that Scott and I know... uh, slightly more about labor commissioner because we had the debate uh than we do about insurance commissioner and so we're going to ask questions that may sound uneducated or uninformed and that's okay because that's kind of our our niche here is our it's trying I, to help all the people out there that are also unaware of what these positions do can i use a word i've been trying to work into the pod for our whole life
1: and i've not yet been able to use it is it milieu no it's better okay educating people about functions of state government is uh Our Bailiwick, if you will. You like that? I don't think it was funny.
0: Well, it still deserves a rim shot. (laughs) Here's what you want.
1: (laughs) Hey. Thank you. I
0: appreciate that. You know, any chance I have to use my little soundboard, I'm going to take advantage of it. Oh, he's so proud of it. Bailiwick. Also, for those parents at home, Bailiwick is the name of the butler on Sophia the First, the cartoon um, voiced by Tim Gunn. Interesting. My daughter loves the show. It's he's definitely the highlight
1: I just decided right now it's going to be the name of my next dog bailiwick yeah it's uh, subject to Ashley's approval
0: <laughs> that's right I've decided once my wife ratifies it yeah
1: that's <laughs> outstanding. that's right yes uh,
0: that's right all right well anyway back to our guests um, let's start with the insurance commissioner if that's okay and Fred feel free to chime in if you've got uh, insider information I know you guys have been kind of campaigning together around the state is that correct
2: That is absolutely correct.
0: Just uh, saves gas for sure that way.
2: Well, there's a couple reasons. Uh, First of all, we are the only two statewide candidates in the Tulsa area, so it made it beneficial for us to travel together as we've gone all across the state. Yeah. But more importantly, early on, based off of feedback, questions we got from voters in the community, the overlap between insurance commissioner and labor commissioner became so clear that it made sense for us to continue to collaborate and and to uh... leverage our campaigns in that manner um, the basic principle is when we're in a state that has such a high level of poverty we have so many economic factors we already know all the reasons we're at the bottom compared to other states nationwide and then you look at rural oklahoma especially. The common denominator is that without uh, a living wage, you can't afford what has become a luxury, which is insurance, and sure. that is unfortunate. So that is one of the things that allowed us to first start collaborating together.
1: Yeah. Can, can I ask you to just kind of jump off from there and kind of give just a, a quick primer for, for me and for all the listeners? What does the insurance commissioner do? Like, what's the job description as you see it?
2: Well, uh, I have two explanations for that, and the first is on a personal level. I am frequently uh, going around the state saying that insurance is something that people only care about when something bad happens, and that means someone is sick, someone has died, you've been in an accident, your property has been damaged, or some other catastrophic event has happened. And then that's the worst time to find out who's actually in charge of the insurance department. And so what the insurance department does and what the insurance commissioner's role is, is to uh, regulate and enforce the state statutes with regard to the insurance code. But what most people don't know is that the insurance department in Oklahoma is one of the most powerful state agencies that people are not aware of because there are so many other Regulated entities that are also under the uh, regulation and control of the insurance commissioner and the insurance department. That includes the real estate appraisers agency, the bail bondsmen, PEOs, which are private employment organizations, are there, PBMs, which are pharmacy benefit managers, and the list goes on and on. And so there is a hodgepodge, including portions of um, the premium tax that's collected for also the workers comp multiple injury trust fund. And so within the state agency, so many areas that intersect every Oklahoman's life are under the leadership of the insurance department and over the last eight years because it's become politicized everywhere i go people see that their rates have gone up their coverage has gone down they have to fight for basic uh provisions to be upheld in policies and there's something wrong with our system and so those are some of the things that uh an effective insurance commissioner should be focused on
1: man i hear that because i'll tell you what i uh i i uh well, so I, I work in healthcare and I uh, have a, I have a very complicated relationship with health insurance companies. I guess actually it's not that complicated. Um, we can. Talk they about give that often. you money
0: and you despise them uh, for everything except for that. You and, and yeah tolerate
1: except they don't really give us money. <laughs> that's that's one of the reasons eh, we despise. at the end of the day. Yeah, they do. It's just harder than it should be, but that's a whole other conversation. But uh, kind of getting out of out of that realm, you know, I I feel like. I like my homeowner's insurance goes up every year, right? Like I, my car insurance goes up every year and I, I haven't had a payout. Like we've never made, we've been in our house seven years. We've never made a claim and our homeowner's insurance is almost double what it was when we bought the house. Um, and so I guess what, what do you do as the insurance commissioner that helps, you know, like, I guess what's the, what's kind of the most common scenario in which the work of the insurance commissioner intersects with the life of the everyday Oklahoman
2: well that is a complicated question and of course the answers are complicated as well but what the insurance commissioner should be doing is regulating the insurance companies overseeing both the licensing, continuing education, and approval, but also looking at claims-paying practices. And so what's been happening, uh, one of the reasons that Oklahoma is third highest in the nation in auto and home premiums especially, there are some factors in terms of actuarial risks that do affect uh, setting the rates. But especially in Oklahoma, we pay some of the highest rates in the nation, and most people are unaware that their zip code affects them especially with our rural population, access to a fire station, age of fire equipment. Um, these are factors, including such things as your marital status, your gender, your zip code, and your credit score are all used against you in setting your insurance rates that have nothing to do with your actuarial claims experience. And so what we've been finding is when you don't have a tight regulatory environment and certainly we want to send the message that Oklahoma needs to be open for business and open for competition but when there's been limited uh, opportunity for the marketplace to have fair that insurance companies are coming in just as you've pointed out and raising your rates year over even in the single digits a 10 percent or a 20 percent rate hike um, year over year and one of the other things that's really a shame especially in oklahoma and over it is very common that if you were in a marital relationship for years and the major spouse who was the bill payer died We find that there are widows and widowers who are suddenly priced out of being able to afford insurance for their home because once that uh, uh, primary spouse dies, their new insurance rate is based off of the credit score as well as the marital status, which is now single and considered a higher risk for that surviving spouse. And so if one person paid the bills and didn't have uh, a relative history, and many of our seniors are on fixed or low incomes and just don't use credit credit it's not even whether you have good or bad credit it's that you know they were raised in a generation where they didn't extend credit these are all factors that are hurting our state, and what we do know factually is that the surrounding states of Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, and Missouri pay half the national average, and so our catastrophic uh, incidents uh, of weather events alone is not enough explanation for why we have some of the highest rates in the nation, but we also know that in our state especially, insurance corporations and lobbyists have had a disproportionate influence on the legislature, on setting Mm -hmm. rates in our state, and when the insurance commissioner has been friendly to that as opposed to being on the side of protecting the consumer, this is the situation we find ourselves in. And it's a disingenuous conversation to say that we have some of the highest uninsured rates in the nation when we are continually raising the price of, of having coverage for people who are on median incomes that are below poverty level to be able to afford insurance.
0: Hmm. That's fascinating. I've, I've done roofing for years and, and people joke, I mean, we kind of, I've seen it. Uh, so I did roofing in college. Um, and then I kind of took a break cause so I went to grad school and started into a career. And then we had a big hailstorm a few years ago and I, uh, called up my cousin and started helping with some estimates And when I saw how much the prices had increased, I thought, holy cow, like these things have gone way up. And he's like, well, insurance companies are paying more now, but also premiums had, or not premiums, but excuse me, deductibles had gone from what used to be, you know, a $500 deductible on most insurance plans were now 1% or 2% of the value of your home. And so while the, the payout may have gone up, maybe let's say it doubled, the deductibles had like quadrupled or more and I thought that doesn't that's a enormous increase in a, in like a 10 year period of time and so it sounds like maybe there are some forces at play behind the scenes that we don't always see
2: well there are several and i think you just hit a really important point um an insurance policy should be clear. You should know for the premiums you're paying what you're getting in return. And one of the things that has happened, and many consumers are still unaware, is to your point 10 years ago when you had a homeowner's policy that included roof replacement or roof. Uh, Replacement cost today, you find your policy has either a deductible based off of a percentage of value of your home, or there are other factors that you don't get complete and total replacement. The other issue that we see, especially in Oklahoma, is that when it comes to roofs and the age of the roof, many times that when we have hail events, um, they're either steered toward one or two suggested or recommended. appraisers mm-hmm. but often the consumer is not getting the full replacement value or coverage needed in order to take care of the damage and then they're left holding a 25 or 30 uh, percent out-of-pocket cost which for most families is unaffordable
0: that's true that's funny i'll i will uh disclose that our board president nicole whoops I hit my microphone um but she's trying to replace a roof for a uh, family member of hers and so i've been trying to help them out and the insurance came to look at it the other day, and and I, I told her, I was up front, I said, this is an old roof. I'm going to guess it's like 12 to 14 years old based on the condition of the shingles, which is the average life of a roof in Oklahoma, even though all the shingles are you know guaranteed for 25, 30 years. That just means they're not going to totally fall apart, but that doesn't mean they won't be weathered. Sure. Uh, and so she texted me the other day and said the insurance company came out and said, well, you've got a 10-year-old roof that's still got another 15 years of life left. And I said does it Um, and so she's there was not enough significant damage from hail to like really qualify it but it's at that point where it's there's gonna be diminishing returns from here on out so condolences to Nicole and all the other roof owners out there who have to deal with that it's no fun yeah Um, Kimberly can you tell us a little bit about why you decided to run for this office and how you got involved in politics in the first place
2: Well, uh, I'll start with the first question. Um, Why I decided to run is because I have uh, almost a 20 year background uh, in management with MetLife. For many years, my responsibility was to uh, work with consumers and policyholders to run an investigations unit that included interfacing with state insurance departments. But more specifically, I didn't sell insurance. My job was to know the policy provisions, whether it was annuities or life insurance or our institutional products work with policyholders and consumers, and fulfill the promises and obligations for the premiums that they paid. And um, further, I serve currently as chairwoman of my uh, political party in Tulsa County, Mm. and so um, I've also had a lifetime of public service, and many factors came together as uh, we started to look at the landscape uh, early in the spring that it appeared no one across the state was going to step up and run for insurance commissioner, and quite honestly, fundamentally, I had a real problem with a sitting state legislator who was taking all of his contributions from the insurance industry, writing laws for the insurance industry, and profiting from the insurance industry, turning around and saying that he was going to regulate the insurance department, but he didn't believe in um, ho- enforcing the laws and wanted the free market to reign. and so. For those reasons, it was time to step up and say, we're going to challenge.
0: Sure. I think we saw that a lot this year yeah. with, I mean, we had a record number of people that filed to run for office across the state and, and people were, I know were running for offices that they didn't even know existed. They just like looked at the list and said, Oh, that's an elected office. I'll run for that, which is kind of cool in some ways. Like I love people getting involved like that. Um, I'm sure some folks got in over their head, um, I will say at, at the uh, the debate, uh, Fred, that, that we had for Labor Commissioner, it was you and um, you had an opponent for the primary. Uh, and even during the debate, he, and I think, well, he lost, and he, I think, conceded at some point. But he, during the debate, it was pretty obvious that he was like, you know, this guy's great. I'm doing this because I care about it, but I don't know that I'm the best person either. Uh, and so it was, right. and, and um and it takes an immense amount of courage just to throw your hat in the ring in the sure. first place, and so kudos to both of you for uh, for stepping out there.
1: So I want to I want to touch on something that you've mentioned a, a couple times and see if you could kind of uh, expand on it for us. So you know we hear and we hear this all the time in politics, and I it it drives me up the wall. So <laughs> I feel like I'm as people who listen to the show know I'm a I'm a registered Democrat. I would probably consider myself a progressive, and one of the things when I'm talking to um either legislators or you know other people that are more kind of conservative than than I am i hear talk about the free market and like people talk about let let's uh we need to have you know the market needs to solve like healthcare coverage for instance right well one thing that i point out to people is that we don't actually have a free market when it comes to healthcare <laughs> um and a lot of people don't understand that they say well i don't want the government to take over the market should do it well I mean, maybe that's good, maybe that's bad, but if we're gonna let the market do it, the market needs to do it. And the market we don't have a free market right now. And I feel like you've alluded a couple of times to the fact that there's not a functional free market where there's really competition when it comes to insurance in Oklahoma. Is that an accurate statement? And if there's not, can you kind of if that's true, can you kind of explain why?
2: Um I would say that's an accurate statement. I would say I'm specifically talking more in our healthcare market for a moment as opposed to our property and casualty lines, but we still have options there as well. But specifically in Oklahoma, although we are getting a second insurer back into um, the affordable care marketplace this year, we know that for the last five years, especially the uh, 100 pound blue gorilla in the room has been Blue Cross Blue Shield of Oklahoma. And while many people feel that that is um, a benefit Benefit, I challenge that there are also some several red flags with that because when you don't have but one choice you have one fail point and both in terms of legislation that has been authored by my opponent in terms of positions the current commissioner as well as the naic have taken it is clear that they have steered both a horizontal and vertical market model that is a running rural insurers and providers out of business in terms of too low of reimbursement rates uh, cost and also in terms of even intimidation within the patient and provider relationship Because in that model, you have two choices. You either are in an agreement with Blue Cross Blue Shield, um, and then you are bound by their rates, their claims paying practices, and their procedure codes, or you're frozen out of the system, and that drives many providers out of business. When you are a patient and you are paying for the premium, whether it's the silver or the the top-of-the-line level of service, and yet you really don't have choice as a patient because if your doctor refers you, to have the test that you want or send you to the specialist that you want and that drives up cost or they deny your claim, they're forcing you into a bronze or a lower cost model. And providers then either spend time having to fight to get uh, the correct procedure codes. And what we're seeing is that in many instances, the insurance company, and not just Blue Cross Blue Shield of Oklahoma, there are several, but when they are practicing medicine without a license, I, I frequently say, before you ever walk into the doctor's office, your doctor knows what test he can order, what medicines to prescribe, and your model of care is dictated by an insurance company and not by what's best in the provider-patient relationship. I'm just going to
1: let my response to that be my uh, raised glass right there. Uh,
2: I I will contest (laughs) that
0: I would say providers don't always know what tests they can order. No, They just order whatever they need and then we sort it out later, which is why, on average, it requires 2.5 2.8 employees per physician in order to run a practice
1: no it gets really you know and i i for a whole bunch of reasons try not to get too much into the specifics of the day-to-day of my job um on the show but um navigating that navigating that roadmap with insurance companies is is incredibly frustrating and Yeah. yeah it's incredibly frustrating i know now i know you have Another question you were going to ask. And I can I do a follow-up sure, real quick? Sure, sure. So you mentioned the Affordable Care Act, the exchange, and that Blue Cross is the only provider in the exchange right now. Um, and I'm if I get some of the details of what I'm about to say wrong, please jump in and correct me. But it's my understanding that when the Affordable Care Act passed uh, in 2009 and went into practice in 2010, Oklahoma, not only did we choose not to expand Medicaid, but we decided we are not going to set up our own exchange. And so there was an exchange set up for us by the federal government is that accurate
2: um partially so um for the most part but there is one caveat um especially in our state you know one of the things i'm running on is that there's a difference in record and experience and frequently there is this um misperception that one party or the other has a monopoly on good ideas, Mm -hmm. and uh, what is important to point out is that my opponent actually is the one that introduced the Obamacare legislation for exchanges in Oklahoma, Mm -hmm. which was just egregious to most conservatives. And so I find that it is ironic that a few years later, that he wants to point the finger at others when he was actually at the table in introducing that legislation. Okay. But to your point, the exchanges as they exist today, we do have some some clear opportunities. Uh, both myself and uh, the candidate, Mr. Durrell, we were recently in Paul's Valley. And while we do need to look at the fact that Oklahomans and their tax dollars were used and sent out of state and we lost 150,000 people with, with health care, we also need to know that the model needs to be fixed. Over and over again, we're hearing, especially in rural Oklahoma, that many doctors are not accepting Medicaid patients. There is a gap that needs to be filled. There is a financial model with critical care centers versus um, other types of care models that we have to do the right thing. And so the big picture is what we're focused on Because the outcome is that we know with health indicators, we know with access that when people are only going to the hospital instead of in preventative ways and in a regular patient-doctor relationship, that once it becomes a costly procedure for all sides, taxpayers are still paying for that. And so we have to address it, and we would hope that by doing it on the proactive end, it also has an impact to economics because employers don't want to come to an unhealthy undereducated state
1: there's no question about that so how much of that can you when you talk about changing the model when you talk about the opportunity that exists in the in the exchange to to kind of fix some of these problems how much of that authority would you have as insurance commissioner you know from day one and how much would you need new legislation because i know one thing that i think frustrates folks sometimes is that and i'm not saying you're doing this but this is why i'm asking the question is that candidates run for you know statewide elected offices and say, we need to fix this, we need to fix this, we need to fix this, we need to fix... This, need to fix this. I mean, hell, the governors do this sometimes, right? But, but then they get elected and everybody's like, well, I voted for so-and-so and he or she said they were going to do this and it turns out, well, that was my plan, but what I didn't tell you was that we need, you know, 60% of both houses of uh, the, uh, the legislature to agree with me and they don't. So how much how much could you change... walking into the office on the first day, how much stuff could you start doing or how much would you have to work with the legislature to to get done?
2: Well, I'm so glad you asked that. So I'm going to give you a multi-pronged answer. I love those. First and foremost, the Medicaid expansion in and of itself is not directly under the... uh, insurance commissioner's responsibility. It goes with the health care authority. But what we do have, especially when you look at autism, cancer, some of the other uh, critical areas in our state, many uh, families are in a uh, a tug of war between using private insurance and qualifying for some of these other federal programs. And so the overlap in that, as insurance commissioner, I have the uh, ability to bring stakeholders to the table. One of the things that is of concern is that in our state, The number of domestic insurers has gone down as well as the amount of premium that they're riding. But because the marketplace is open, we need to bring the CEOs from other insurers to the table and say, what will it take for you to do business in Oklahoma and how do we help make that environment more productive? Because at that point, more choice will benefit everyone. So that's number one. Number two, yes, I do need to work with the legislature, but within some of the current state statutes, there are some areas where we can have direct influence. But part of my background as well, besides insurance, is in uh, business analytics and quality processes. And one of the things that I really want to do, not just in theory but in practice, is we need to bring – actual data, hard metrics to the public and make that transparent. So what do I mean? We're going to start examining with our top insurers, what are their claims paying rates? How many claims get denied? What procedure codes are being approved? What does the amount of reimbursement look like? Because a hospital or a practice, they know their cost, but from procedure to procedure, from company to company, you can't even say, what are you going to get reimbursed from the insurance company? So there's nothing like a little visibility to help bring people to the table and I believe we have the ability to do that as insurance commissioner and those are some things that then force um, the opportunity for people the good actors to get rewarded more so and that's also where patients get a choice if you know that one insurance company over another has certain practices that are not favorable once you have visibility you can make a choice as a consumer those are some of the things that we can do but then there are also some regulatory uh, things that we look at in terms of market conduct studies examinations looking at solvency and looking again at the overall practices of insurance companies because they haven't had the level of both scrutiny and then publication for the average consumer to understand so that they can make informed decisions.
0: Excellent. Uh, Kimberly, one last question that I have, and then we'll move over to Fred here and hear about where the Labor Commission comes in. Uh, So we've talked a lot about insurance, particularly medical insurance, which I'm sure is what most folks associate with the uh, Office of the Insurance Commissioner. But I've got your walk card here in my hand. And so we've touched on home insurance as well. You've mentioned a lot about rural providers and consumers. And then at the end here, uh, the last bullet point is something you mentioned earlier that I think is interesting. I did not know. And in with a larger discussion about criminal justice reform, your card says real estate appraisers, bondsmen, and other regulated agencies. Specifically, tell me what the role of the insurance commissioner is when it comes to bondsmen.
2: Yet again, another interesting area. So in the bondsman industry, I uh, actually met with the Tulsa Board of the Bail Bondsman Board. But primarily, the insurance department has two roles, which is to collect their fees and money and to oversee the uh, continuing education requirement for the bail bondsman industry. Hmm. Now, what is the tie is twofold. When you think about the fact that in our state, we've guaranteed a 90% occupancy rate in private prisons, well, guess what other agency or industry has gone up quite a bit is the bail bondsman industry. And within that industry, the standards, both in terms of professionalism, education, there are right and wrong ways to to manage in that industry. And so there are some significant challenges. But what's important is, although the money flows through the insurance department in, in Oklahoma City, where that impact is felt is at the county level. And so both the changes in criminal justice reform that um, reduce many things to a misdemeanor, that's pushing pressure down on the county level resources that more and more people are going to go through with or without bail. And one area that is particularly of concern, And it's something, again, you don't make a decision in government without understanding both sides, or sometimes there are many sides to the issue. But one area in the bondsman industry, it was actually legislation that Governor Fallon vetoed in this last session, is the bondsman industry, they assume a lot of risk. And risk has obviously an insurance component to it when a bond is written. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that was happening is say that you were originally – arrested on an assault charge and a bond was written based off of assault and then that person later dies and it's now first degree murder. Mm -hmm. The bondsman industry did not have the ability to go back and have their bond rewritten or raised based on the higher amount of risk Mm -hmm. that they're now assuming because someone has now been upcharged. Seems like common sense to me but it's something that our legislature has decided uh, through the governor that shouldn't have been addressed this year. We've got to look at what makes sense because we want um, to have people in situations where what is appropriate that there's flexibility to do the right thing, both for the industry and also for people who find themselves in that situation. We do know that too many bonds are written based off of amounts that seem to not align with their financial ability to pay, but there are also some legitimate reasons that we need to understand the bondsman industry and that they still have the opportunity to have an advocate for what works for all sides.
0: Right, right. Plenty of opportunities for improvement in our state government also I have learned that bail bondsmen have continuing education requirements. Yeah, that that was news to me. I'm impressed. I have a I have a a friend whose wife is a bondswoman. I guess that we should update that gender term, bonds people. Uh,
2: a bonds so. person. but but here's the challenge. <laughs> and a bonds person? Yeah. The insurance person. department and the commissioner is the one who determines who can provide that continuing education. Oh, yeah. And right now it's the bail Bondsman Board, which is again a single entity. Mm-hmm. Only in Oklahoma City. So what does that do for the rest of the state? You literally have hundreds of bondsmen that twice a year can only go to one source. We're not taking advantage of telecommunications, online learning, Mm -hmm. and we've got to allow the technology to keep pace with delivery systems.
0: For sure. Interesting. I mean, Scott and I both have to deal with continuing education for our respective professions, Yep. Um, and I, I, in fact, next Friday, I'm doing a continuing education course for other behavioral health providers, and so um, that kind of leads our conversation into occupational licensing, which is a great segue to Fred Durrell, who's running for labor commissioner, because occupational licensing is under the labor department.
3: Is that correct? That is correct.
0: All right. Well, uh, tell us a little bit about... uh, Maybe let's start with your background and why you're running.
3: In my background, currently I'm employed at Spirit AeroSystems in Tulsa, a uh, labor relations specialist on the company side. Prior to that, I worked at the Tulsa Glass Plant for 38 years. I was the president chairman of the local union for 12. I was employee benefits rep for 18 years. I teach um, as an adjunct professor at Tulsa Community College, small business, business management, related business classes, and I currently serve and have for the last, I believe, 10, 12 years on the Broken Air Planning Commission.
0: All right. You sound busier than Scott and I put
1: together. Uh, Indeed. And (laughs) I want to make you're uh, from the UAW, is that right?
3: I... Yes, okay. I'm a UAW. Well, I say that uh, I was an active UAW member for 38 years, uh-huh. and I'm a retiree UAW member. Currently, I'm employed at Spirit AeroSystems as a labor specialist, so I'm on right. the company side. So I, sure, I actually deal with the union. Oh, All sure. right, so sure. you've been on both sides. Been on both sides. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. How, do you? So I'll just say, like, with this year, with the teacher walkout and a lot of discussion about. Teacher unions, education unions, or associations, or whatever we want to call them in Oklahoma, and I think there is a sentiment that moving forward, especially depending on who gets elected, but that maybe regardless, unions and and worker groups might start to have a larger role in Oklahoma than than they have had for the last you know eight ten years. Do you think that's the case? And and if so, how does that impact what your role would be as labor commissioner?
3: Well, whether they would have a larger role, I I think the reality is this, the people need a voice. And one of the things that I saw in looking at Labor Commissioner is that it's been watered down over the last number of years. Everything has been about business. Business is critical, extremely important. You have to have business to have wage earners. You have to have wage earners to have business. But there has to be a balance, and there's not been a balance. Um, My background and my experience, I've worked on both sides. I've worked in the shop floor. I've represented people. I've had to discipline people. I've been the whole gambit. You know, my opponent has not. She's a nice lady. Can't say a bad word about her. But there's a big difference in having experience in a job you you mentioned earlier about people running for jobs they don't know nothing about. I'm running for a job that I know how to do, not for a job that I want to learn how to do. And Having said that, I think... One of the things that I've seen is that the worker's been ignored. You know, the top three things that I have is workplace safety, um, a fair wage, um, and education development training uh, in in the workplace. To back up, the primary focus of the labor commissioner is to foster, promote, and develop for the welfare of the wage earner, in addition to advocate for profitable wages. It's the only job in the Constitution Is spelled out solely for the wage earner. Now that's not to say you don't work with business because again, business is critical, but there has to be a balance over the last number of years. I haven't seen a lot of promoting, a lot of advancement or anything for the wage earners. As we go across this state, you look at stagnant wages, you look at workplace safety issues. It's horrendous. The data collection is horrendous. Um, I'm very familiar with data collection because being in HR, Especially from the company side and from the union side. Facts and data is what drives the business. Facts and data is what drives it. And in any business, in your household, you make decisions based on facts and data. If you don't have the facts and data or sufficient, now, you know, they, they talk about cost, it's a cost of doing business. I'm not a proponent of big government, so don't misunderstand me, please. But I am a proponent for effective government sure and there's a big difference yeah um so when you talk you know i think the numbers were at one time for the department of labor 114 heads um now it's heads that's hr terminology (laughs) (laughs) and now it's i think it's an 80 something yeah so i mean i I could go on and on i'm passionate about this you know i believe it and and i i'm 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 the negotiator. I know how to get things done. I've worked with people my whole life, bringing people from opposite sides and opposite viewpoints, bringing them together. Sure.
1: So, you know, one question I have for the, that I find interesting. Um, well, actually, my, fir- my first question I can't ask you, because I'll be honest, before you came, uh, Andy and I were talking, and we couldn't remember if you were originally from UAW or if you were from the Teamsters Union. Uh, If you're from the Teamsters, my first question was going to be, where's Jimmy Hoffa? But uh, (laughs) since you're from UAW, I can't... uh, Or your background's from UAW. I can't uh, ask you that, I guess. But, you know, um, Oklahoma... You don't know. Maybe he knows. Do you know? No. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, one... one issue that I think is really important, and this is cropping up in states across the country. So Oklahoma is a right-to-work state. Um, we followed the suit of lots lots of states across the country. And I want to say it was the late 90s, early 2000s, and became a right-to-work state. Um, states all across the nation are actually going back and revisiting right-to-work. I want to say Arkansas and Missouri, Michigan, maybe. There's mm-hmm. three, or, three or four that this year alone... Um, are pursuing either legislation or ballot initiatives that would rescind right to work status. Um, could you one, talk a little bit about what what right to work means? And two, um, do you see that as something that would change in Oklahoma? Or do you see that as something that you would advocate for as Labor Commission? Kind of what, what are your thoughts? Well,
3: that's a good question because my, my opinion, my experience, right to work is a fallacy. It gives no one a right to a job, um, much like workers' compensation reform. They reformed it, they took they took rights away from workers that reduced their benefits. Um, right to work, the same kind of thing. I don't know where the jobs are that right to work was supposed to generate. Mm-hmm. It was nothing more than a union-busting tactic. Now, here's the interesting part. Currently, the workforce in Oklahoma is only like 5% unionized. Mm-hmm. At the time, I can't remember the exact numbers, but maybe it was 7 or 8%. What has happened is we've lost jobs. Jobs are leaving the state of Oklahoma, which comes back to our educational system. It comes back, and like Kimberly and I, as we travel across, where's the overlap? We talk about stagnant wages. We talk about incentivizing um, businesses to want to come to Oklahoma. So, And you, you spoke earlier, you were talking about um, this, the grant for the, the grad schools. You know, those are the kinds of things that are important, but we rank last on just about, or close to last, on just about everything that's important. We've got to make a difference. We've got to make a change. Politicians have got to quit telling people what they think they want to hear and tell people what they need to hear. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, they've got to have um, an open mic. They've got to have an open ear. You know, I'm and I've always been this way. I'm not going to tell you what I what I believe you want to hear unless I believe it to be true because otherwise I'm lying to you. And there's a lot of tough decisions that have to be made. There are things that need to come to the forefront to have discussions, but it may not be politically popular. You know, we polarize this state, we polarize this country on Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative, And I've always found it interesting that it's conservative when it pertains to you, but it's liberal if it pertains to your neighbor. (laughs) Much like, you know, much like you're in a recession if your neighbor doesn't have a job, but you're in a depression if you don't have a job. Right. And, you know, as I go through the state and then people will say, are you a Democrat or Republican? It's like, what does that really matter? But I am a Democrat. Right. But, you know, it's not about party. It's about the people. And that's the focus is that wage earner out there that hasn't been represented, that hasn't had a voice that that needs someone to fight on their behalf to advocate. And I may have missed this. The function of the Labor Department or the Labor Commissioner is to enforce the laws enacted by the legislature and to advocate. So it's an enforcement and an advocacy. So just wanted to, uh, I know the, the advocacy part, i talked about a lot of things, yeah. but that's where I believe as a labor commissioner, when you see problems, you have problems, you just don't say wage theft is a big one. Right. Uh, you don't just say, well, the law says this and that, and you leave it alone. No, you take that because laws become outdated. Sure. You have to be an advocate. and You go to the legislature and you tell them and you say, hey, here's what I'm saying. Here's the facts and data. You know, I'm all about work. I don't right. miss work. Right. Unlike others that maybe have missed 40 percent right that's not what I do
0: sure so you I'm really interested in how you've worked on both sides right both on the worker side and maybe the union side and the and the company side what uh, because that's a lot of what we do here is try to try to shed light on people out here and help people out here understand how things work up there so Fred for you find most surprising about that side that you didn't expect
3: is that we have in common the biggest problem that I see. And and when when the plant closed, um, I, I have more to give, mm-hmm. and I always believed um, that. Le- and I think the key is understanding. And and we have that in our everyday life. So if you understand, you know where they're coming from. You know why they do what they do or they don't. But it comes down to that. So. You know, I'll be honest with you. When I first came um, to the company side, I didn't know what to expect. Much like what you asked, what's the big difference? And it was really understanding the same thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I had one of the union guys say, how can you be an active union member for 38 years? And now you turn sides and you're on the company. I said, well, that's a good question. But because for 38 years, we always wondered, always wish we had somebody from the company side that knew our challenges mm-hmm. and what sure. we had to deal with. So, you know, I think I, I'm very proud of the company I work for, the the accomplishments that we've made, collaboration, cooperation, working together. To be, because it comes down to it, it's all about the people. Yeah. You got to have a workforce. So, anything that really stands out, no, they, they have we have the same challenges on both sides.
0: Mm-hmm. Did you get treated any differently by your workers once you made the switch?
3: No, uh, my plan had closed. Uh, at first I think there was a little bit like I said question from the union guys, but then they realized that you know, I'm for the people. Mm-hmm. And so I think once they saw that, it comes back, you know, at the end of the day it's all about your integrity. It's not about playing games and you and you're dealing with people's lives. Right. And you may have the power to do something you don't do it because of that you do things because it's the right thing to do you know
1: it's it's interesting because i've you know my uh distant past i've done some construction work and you know different different things before i before i uh went to medical school and um worked with a lot of union guys and have known some some union guys and it's i don't know i've never i never i never met a union worker that was like god the union sucks i wish i (laughs) would I wish I wish I didn't have this union job. It's just freaking terrible. Right. Like I just I just I I uh you know, and I'm biased, but I I I understand, I guess, you know, from the company's position, I can understand why why companies, managers, owners sometimes see challenges with unions and I can see why unions have challenges with with management. But it's just like what you're saying, you know, Mr. Durrell, that they both it seems to me they both need each other. Right? They they both need each other and they're working for ultimately the the same goal um but forget that they forget that sometimes
3: well and you know i always use this analogy it's like a pie you know and uh, the workers get a piece of that pie the bigger that pie the bigger that piece yeah Mm -hmm. the smaller that pie yeah It, it takes both working together and and to your point about you know there's there's unions that Uh, maybe you're not so good, just like there's companies that's not so good because the union's elected people by the people that's in there. And again, even internally, you'll have union people that will run for an election and they'll go around making promises they know they can't keep. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh my God, what do I do? Much like our state legislature, much like our governor, much like some of the people that are running for uh, commissioner and different offices. I I can do this. I've done this. I've done that. We're putting the wrong people in doing the job they shouldn't be doing. We need to yeah. start putting the right people in there that has some background and experience that can get the job done, but it's going to listen to the people. Sure. Sure.
0: That's, so I uh, want to ask a question. This is kind of to both of you guys um, <clears throat> about a situation that I think might kind of straddle both of your potential offices. Uh, so this last weekend, There was a a terrible accident in Bricktown here where um, somebody fell, a a light pole thing broke, and a guy fell into the canal and died. Uh, And another guy jumped in to help and was electrocuted, and last I heard was in critical condition. And um, I had the 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 opportunity to visit with some of the workers down there um, a couple of days later to kind of just help kind of process the the emotional component of, of being there and witnessing it and... Being unable to help um, for safety reasons, and so you know, someone who kind of works on there had a question that you know some of their workers were emotionally scarred, right? Like or you know, scarred, but emotionally impacted by this event, and and they wondered if workers comp would cover that. And I honestly have no idea if workers comp would cover something that was like like counseling to help with something event that that didn't physically impact them and so in that i i thought about that that there's well there's worker safety because it just as easily could have been an employee down there that was injured um and and in some i guess honestly like they are injured it's just yeah. not in a physical way the way that we have traditionally thought of injuries right
1: Dude, i mean pete i mean that's what ptsd is right like yeah ptsd is a cognitive injury
0: yeah so uh, i'm just going to throw that event out there and you guys chime in. Well, if
3: I could interject something interestingly enough, this glorious workers comp bill that they've talked about how they've improved it um, did cut mental health benefits. So again, that's just another area that they've cut because it's all about the business and -hmm. not about the worker. To your point, safety, safety and mental health intertwine. The Department of Labor should have a relationship uh, task force, call it what you want, to work with um, Department of Human Health and Human Services. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, this has been a, an ongoing thing, but that's a prime example of when people see an employee or employees see another employee or coworker, the, the trauma that comes with that to help them, how do you deal with it? Uh, we would provide counselors in our organization. Now, mm-hmm. I think, again, we talk about all these cent- incentives for business. How about incentivize businesses so that if you provide the necessary uh, mental health benefits be it eap be it what the counseling i mean that should be a basic requirement for all businesses that if something like that happens and you know people will hear that and say uh oh, just once again grow government or do this no no i mean it's the people that makes this state great mm-hmm. and so i think it's paramount that those kind of, those kind of instances incidents should be there should be a requirement upon the, the employer to provide that
0: sure sure
1: you know that's one of my that's one of my. It's not even specific to to workers comp, but one of my just pet peeves, and it's it's so frustrating. And Andy, this I'm sure will hit close to home with you, but like mental health is one of those things that it's it's very easy to cut because it's so difficult to see, right? Like it's so difficult to see, and it's also difficult. It's also very easy. Um, and I know this because I hear it from patients all the time. You know, patients that maybe have depression, they are even if they need medicine patients as a group tend to be very reluctant to start medicine for depression because they think why I shouldn't have to take medicine mm-hmm. to not be depressed. Right. And I say, if you had asthma, would you say mm-hmm. I shouldn't <clears throat> need medicine for asthma? Mm-hmm. No. You'd be like, man, it sucks. out to." Take... right.
0: Uh, Diabetes. And anything yeah. Else. You know, like, but like, it's but why... still a, it's still a chemical right. thing. Right.
1: And, and people, and I think that that, that kind of perception is writ large. Like, that we shouldn't think of these things as treatable, chronic, but treatable diseases. And if we thought of mental health that way, I mean, if we made the investment to treat, to really diagnose and treat mental health the way that we should, I mean, it would be a lot of money up front, but I mean, we would save billions of dollars over the long term i mean you're talking about in criminal justice you're talking about missed days at work you're talking about Mm -hmm. better insurance rates you're talking like it's it's adequate treatment adequate treatment for mental health is to me up there with um, education as one of the things that's a it's one of It's one of the silver bullets that we need.
2: Well, if I could chime in there to your question there's there's a couple parts where labor and insurance commissioner do overlap in this example. first and foremost, to your point, health care is the whole person that includes mental health as well as your physical health, and we've got to adjust our model for that. But in this particular instance, this accident happened because clearly there were not the correct workplace safety inspections to find out that this lighting system was properly grounded so from an insurance standpoint you've got two choices if this was commercially insured what kind of ratings and inspections were passed that allowed this and if it was self-insured which is actually one of the big concerns within our state that is uh, going to bite us sooner rather than later We have what are called interlocals, which are many governmental agencies or municipalities that are pooling together to self-insure, and they have inadequate risk reserves and inadequate oversight, and this allows things like this to happen. But there's one other piece that we have to talk about when we look at the totality of workers' comp and whether something like this would be covered. We have a situation that actually falls within part of my department, but should be in Fred's department. Um, Just in the last uh, couple months, over the summer, our Supreme Court ruled yet again that for the third time, our state legislature, which includes my opponent, Glenn Mulready, and Mr. Durrell's opponent, Leslie Osborne, failed the people of Oklahoma. We are on the hook because of the Supreme Court ruling that insurers sued our state based off of a rebate law that Governor Fallon and the legislature three times tried to fix going back to 2015, so that they sued the multiple injury trust fund. That was money that they wanted back for not paying claims to injured workers. And the taxpayers of our state are now on the hook for $100 million. Hmm. Who there, gets a repaid for not paying claims to injured workers? Right. It's incredible.
0: There was a, I think there was an interim study about that this week. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I can't remember who requested it. That might have been, Representative it right. virgin maybe? Yeah,
0: it could be.
3: Well, interesting note too on the safety piece. If the federal government is reducing or not appointing or reappointing like the OSHA inspectors, mm-hmm. The same challenge we have here in the state and we talk about the safe program and the importance that is and has, but my understanding is that there's a waiting line to do that. Now I, I know the current commissioner, Melissa Houston has done a great job. She's an administrator of that. She's just getting it going. But I think what we need is someone that knows where to look, that knows what to do and to reach out and to make, address those tough issues. Again, mental health in the workplace. You know uh originally it's like mental health does not fall under the scope of the labor commissioner Mm -hmm. but that, that to what kimberly said that doesn't mean that departments or department heads and stakeholders much like what you said can't work together to find a solution one of the things that i propose is putting together a task force call it what you want but to get the the stakeholders involved the departments and look and see what we can do. We've got to address those tough issues. I know that firsthand as much as anybody. And you know, it's a travesty if we wanna turn our head for those, and you're right, we have EAP programs where we work. It's underutilized because people think because they have a, uh, they go through depression or whatever it might be. I was talking to a lady today and got off on a, a discussion about that and she openly said, you know, I suffer from anxiety and you know, I go through depression more and more and more we see that we've got to quit ignoring that and you know it's not about that comes under my my scope or kimberly's or whoever i'm i'm one of these is hey kimberly i got something here where i think we need to look at we need to talk about i don't care who gets credit i don't care who's responsible but it has to be addressed and has to quit being ignored safety workplace safety mental health Uh, A living wage and education development training in in the workplace, which I haven't really touched a lot about, but I could talk for 30, 45 (laughs) minutes on that.
0: Sure. Well, let's uh, we're about out of time, so let's end with one final question for each of you guys. Um, In, we'll say, 60 seconds or less, tell us or tell listeners why they should vote for the other person that's here. You guys are running against each other but you've been going around the state together. I'm sure I've watched you kind of nudge and, and hand signal, like, don't forget to say the whatever. So you know each other's strengths uh, and, and probably weaknesses too. But uh, so, uh, Fred, I'll let you go first this time. Tell people why they should vote for Kimberly.
3: Well, I, th- that's a good question, and I answer that all the time. Or actually, I don't answer it. I just state it. <laughs> Kimberly, I, I didn't know Kimberly until we met, I believe it was in the first part of May, in an event. Um, came to know Kimberly she's very knowledgeable she's very experienced she's passionate she cares she believes Um, she you know I've seen people she engages with people Um, she's not afraid to address the hard questions or or to tackle things that are important Um, she's a genuineness about her that that's had from day one and and to me in the insurance department as an insurance commissioner you got to fight the fight for the people and, and the things that she talks about, uh, the discrimination or the penalties or however you want to call it for women, minorities, those things are ridiculous that we all face and deal with. And her alone may not be able to resolve it, but I can guarantee you one thing, she's going to be a champion to fight it. And so that's why I support and I'm behind Kimberly Fox.
0: All right. Excellent. That's so nice. Thank Kimberly, you. why should people vote for Fred.
2: Well, as Fred stated, we did meet in May, and I have the honor to campaign with Fred as well, and and I'm going to turn it right back around. When I first met Fred, one of the first uh, things he shared with me is how many of his retired union members would come to him still, and they had a question about retiree benefits and retiree insurance problems. But what I saw as Fred came around the state is he is truly got a heart for the people, he is a listener, he is a fighter, but in the way that fights for solutions where everybody walks away from the table with something that they can uh, feel proud about. And truly, you know, neither one of us are career politicians. This is a job that we're doing because we believe in the people of Oklahoma. And what I've seen from Fred Durrell is he's talked to people from Woodward, Oklahoma, to Alva, to Guymon. And he takes the time to listen more than talk. He takes the time to find out what kind of solution will benefit workers and business in the state of Oklahoma. And that's important. I can't say it enough. This is a job that should be about what is best for the workers of Oklahoma. And when it's best for the workers of Oklahoma, there is also a win in it for business. And Fred has the respect of both political parties. Quite frankly, everywhere we go, he knows more Republicans than Democrats who come up and shake his hand, say that they appreciate that he's running, and they know because of his 40-plus year uh, years of integrity and fighting and doing the right thing, you know, he took on the glass plant to keep it open down to the last man. He fought for jobs. And that same passion that he has, he will bring to fighting for he promises. He's not a legislator who's going to say that he's for the wage earner but never voted. But he says he'll do, he'll do.
0: Sure. Excellent. Well, that brings us to uh, being here. Thank you. Thanks. It was a pleasure. Pleasure talking to you guys. Getting to meet you for a month away. Indeed. Scott, thanks for being here. Hey, man. It's your house. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Don't forget to subscribe and rate Let's Pod This on Apple Podcasts because that helps other Let's Fix This Okay. Scott is at SC Melson. I am at Andy Okay. Fix This Okay. And our website is let'sfixthisok.org. And stay tuned this weekend this episode, you should listen to it before then, but I'm coming for you at the Tower Theater on Northwest 23rd Street here in Oklahoma City, but I muted his mic. Let's fix this as a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization. Get involved in any way you can, and remember, decisions are made by those who show up. Have a great